from the dead, the greatest gift, who goes there, and nothing lasts forever. All little-known novels that were either never published or barely survived their publishing before being turned into Vertigo, It's a Wonderful Life, The Thing, and Die Hard. Another film with such pedigree was released today, 70 years ago, on June the 23rd, 1949. Only you might never know it. Look at the credits of Kind Hearts and Coronets, and you will not anywhere see a proper citation of its source material. The admission reads merely, based on a novel by Roy Horniman. But which novel, and why wasn't it named? Back in 1907, London publishing house Chateau and Windus received a manuscript, Israel Rank, The Autobiography of a Criminal. Dubious as the title sounded, the author was well known. Roy Horniman was not only a successful playwright and manager of Piccadilly's Criterion Theatre, he had already published through Chateau and Windus three popular novels, The Sins of Atlantis, That Fast Miss Blount and Bellamy the Magnificent, and by the end of the year, Chateau and Windus would publish his fifth, Lord Carmely's Secret. It was a good thing Horniman wrote another so quickly, because Israel Rank soon became so scarce, the autobiography of a criminal thereafter sat for decades, undisturbed on remote shelves in dusty recesses of darkened libraries. Still, not all was lost for Horniman, because Bellamy the Magnificent continued to sell, and sell so much, it was adapted for the screen no less than three times in six years. Any lingering disappointment over the failure of Israel Rank was further eased by film adaptations of three more of Horniman's works, A Nonconformist Parson, Jenny, and The Education of Elizabeth. Yet, while none of those titles are remembered today, it would likely bring Horniman some pleasure to know that Israel Rank has risen to the point that it is by far the most successful fiction he ever wrote. A brief history of the events leading thereto, written on the eve of his execution, by Louis Descoigne Mazzini, 10th Duke of Chalfont, who ventures to hope that it may prove not uninteresting to those who remain to read it. My good man, it is not by my choice that you keep me company. If you wish to sleep, pray do me the courtesy of sleeping quietly. If you wish for a copy of Horniman's novel, you can avail of the print-on-demand service offered by Favour Publishing or as I did, read it online for free on archive.org. The novel's reversal of fortune began in 1947, when British playwright Michael Pertwee found a discarded copy in the library of his golf club. Recognising Horniman's name, Pertwee was soon convinced the book would make a good film. And this is where we begin to understand why the finished film is so discreet about its origins. Louis, we must think very carefully about your future. Well, it should be quite easy to get a job. Not a job, dear. A career. I had hoped for Cambridge for you. The Descoins always go to Trinity. And then perhaps the diplomatic. But I'm afraid it's no use looking as high as that. However, when you've passed your examination, that should equip you for a start in one of the professions. People of quite good family go into the professions nowadays, I understand. Now, who do we know who could help us? We don't really know anyone, except the family, and they don't know us. The least we can do is try once more. As you may have deduced from his name, Israel Rank is Jewish, or at least half-Jewish. He was born to a Jewish father, but since his mother hailed from British nobility, Israel was baptised a Christian. 
Horniman's novel depicts Israel as a jealous, greedy, narcissistic psychopath who massacres his way through his extended and estranged family, all so that he may lay claim to a senior title in the peerage. This he does by various means, poison, arson, battery, and in the case of a small child, deliberately infecting a handkerchief with scarlet fever. Called an autobiography, the novel is narrated by Israel, and while his voice does offer an ironic view of anti-Semitism, Horniman fails to differentiate between his creation and the ignorant stereotypical depiction of Jewish people. As a result, the pages have more than just a whiff of anti-Semitism, which isn't the only reason why Horniman named his protagonist Rank. His surname also references social standing, and the view with which British society in general, and the aristocracy in particular, held Jewish people. All of which means that Pertwee was pitching a story of bigotry in 1947, barely two years after the full horrors of Nazism had been revealed to the world. What is more, Pertwee was pitching the project to the head of Ealing, Michael Balkan. Balkan was the son of Jewish immigrants from Latvia, where close to 95% of the Jewish population had been murdered in the Holocaust. Still, Balkan was able to see beyond the story's unacceptable tone and recognise the plot held much premise. So he called in one of Ealing's regular writers, John Dighton. Having penned no less than a dozen films in seven years with the studio, Dighton had proved himself a writer of considerable dexterity. In fact, he would go on to win an Oscar for co-writing Roman Holiday. Must be quite a life you have in that school, champagne for lunch. Only on special occasions. For instance? The last time was my father's anniversary. Wedding? No, it was the 40th anniversary of, um, of the day he got his job. 40 years on the job. <laughs> what do you know about that? What does he do? Well, mostly you might call it public relations. Oh, well, that's hard work. Yes, I wouldn't care for it. Enchanting as that fairy tale still is, it was Dighton's collaboration with director Robert Hamer that translated Horniman's problematic novel into Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is, for me, one of the greatest of all British films. <laughs> In the film, Israel is renamed Louis Dascoigne Mazzini, the son of an Italian opera singer who married the youngest daughter of the Duke of Chalfont. But the Chalfonts objected to the marriage, and so they steadfastly denied Louis' very existence. Louis' father died very young, leaving Louis' mother destitute, and on her deathbed many years later, she declares it her final wish to be buried at the family church of Chalfont. But that request is also rejected, and with the story now so seamlessly restructured, we find ourselves rooting for a serial killer. You'll be the sixth Descoin that I've killed. You want to know why? In return for what the Descoins did to my mother. Because she married for love, instead of for rank, or money, or land. They condemned her to a life of poverty and slavery, in a world with which they had not equipped her to deal. You yourself refused to grant her dying wish, which was to be buried here at Chalfont. When I saw her poor little coffin slide underground, saw her exiled in death she'd been in life, I swore to have my revenge on your intolerable pride. So, Kind Hearts and Coronets becomes a story about snobbery, class and social division. Proof of which can be seen in the positions held by the Dascoin heirs. All of them are pillars of the establishment. One runs his own bank, another is a church reverend, 
Paul G. Moore are officers in the Navy and Army. At that moment, the concealed enemy emerged from behind the copy. I held our guns fire until we could see the whites of their eyes. Then I gave the order. Fire! Boom, boom, boom. Ealing is the world's oldest functioning studio, and between 1949 and 55, it produced a string of classic comedies. Whiskey Galore, Passport to Pimlico, The Lavender Hill Mob, The Man in the White Suit and The Lady Killers. All of which gently mock British society, its identity, morality and customs. And while those titles are either classics or masterpieces, none of them come remotely near the delicious sedition of kind hearts and coronets. Louis, played so deftly by Dennis Price, goes about his murders with perfect aplomb. One victim he drowns by guiding their punt over a weir. For another, he deploys a bow and arrow to fell a hot air balloon. Twice he resorts to explosives, once with a mix of chemicals, the other a jar of caviar packed with gelignite, and yet another by poisoning a canter of sherry. Such brio has us viewing him less of a psychopathic murderer than that of a loyal son, blessed with a dashing zeal for revenge. Never before had a British film taken such delight in uprooting the status quo, if not giving full vent to class resentment. Let me remind you of a little not-so-ancient history. When I was a draper's assistant and you were rich father's son, you showed me no kindness. Now our positions are reversed and you come whining to me for favours. Draper's assistant, that's right. Rotten little counter-jumper, that's all you are. Very high and mighty now, but your mother married an Italian organ grinder. It is one thing to have all that in the script, it is quite another to deliver it on screen. And proof of that can be seen in the reaction from no less than Joseph Breen, the then head of Hollywood's production code. Access to the American market was crucial to Ealing's success. And receiving the script from Balkan, Breen wrote, This is such a peculiar story that we will not be able to give proper opinion on it until we see the finished product. Breen was concerned for numerous reasons. Louis does not pay for his crimes. He and Sibella, played by Joan Greenwood, commit adultery without due punishment. And then there is this unpleasant vocabulary. Do you remember in the old days how we used to play eeny, meeny, miny, moe? Catch a nigger by his tail. If he hollers, let him go. Out goes he. Quite a lot of little niggers have gone out, haven't they, one way or another? A great pity, because with the exception of that vulgar slur, the dialogue runs with the sophistication, if not the witticism, of Oscar Wilde. And while Balkan balked at the intensity of the love scenes between Louis and Sibylla, the one thing never allowed in Ealing Pictures was sex of any sort, the ensemble cast is superb. Valerie Hobson as Edith, a virtuous Chalfont widow, John Penrose as Lionel, Sibylla's cuckolded husband, and the astonishingly versatile Alec Guinness as the Dascoins. Count them carefully and you will see he fills out not eight, but nine different roles. In fact, Guinness's multiple performances affords the film one of its best and most subtle jokes. The aristocracy are so inbred, they all look alike. All in all, the performances are so harmonious that the savage violence is effortlessly kept in check. It would be tempting to say that such tonal consistency relied on Hamer's finely tuned direction. But given that Hamer never showed such delicacy in any of his other films, it is fairer to say that Kind Hearts and Coronets is the product of a collaborative team working in harmony. In other words, a kneeling comedy. We see each other when we want to. 
We're not obliged to see each other when we don't want to. Don't see each other as often as I'd like to. We've been away the whole weekend. I had to go. Where? Uh, see Mrs. Descoyne, the widow of that cousin of mine who was killed. All your cousins seem to get killed. I really wouldn't be the least surprised if you'd murdered them all. Check the credits for coronets and you will find numerous names who served on countless other Ealing pictures. Art director William Kellner and costume designer Anthony Mendelssohn, both of whom worked on The Lavender Hill Mob and The Man in the White Suit. Then composer Ernest Irving, who here adapted Mozart's Don Giovanni, but who also worked on the music for Whiskey Galore and Passport to Pilmico. And then nestled in amongst all those names is one of Britain's most accomplished cinematographers three-time Oscar nominee Douglas Slocum. Besides also lighting The Lavender Hill Mob and The Man in the White Suit, he also lit the first three installments of this franchise. The Hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the Ark. When they settled in Canaan, they put the Ark in a place called the Temple of Solomon. In Jerusalem. Where it stayed for many years, until all of a sudden, Wush is gone. Where? Well, nobody knows where. When? However, an Egyptian pharaoh Shishan, yes. invaded the city of Jerusalem around about 980 BC, and he may have taken the ark back to the city of Tanis and hidden it in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls. I know it sounds churlish, but if there is a deficiency in coronets, it is its lack of visual wit. It looks great, yet for all its finery and poise, its staging is somewhat static. Like David Lean, Robert Wise and Don Siegel, Robert Hamer began his career as an editor. In fact, he cut Alfred Hitchcock's adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's Jamaica Inn. But for coronets, Hamer's blocking of the scenes is inert. Yes, when a comedy is dependent on dialogue for its laughs, the less intrusive the visuals, the better. But almost everything happens in the same visual plane, the foreground. The one occasion that is different is when Louis dispatches the somewhat well-meaning Henry Dascoigne. Louis switches the petrol for paraffin in Henry's darkroom, which results in an explosion that takes place behind the innocent Edith's back. Mr. Mazzini. Yes? I hope you will forgive my speaking to you on a personal matter, but it worries me that Henry should spend so much time on his hobbies that he has little left for any more useful activities. Am I right to let him go on like this? I could hardly point out that Henry now had no time left for any kind of activity, so I continue to discuss his future. He has never shown any wish for a career in politics. None. Nor any other ambitions? One only. To win a prize at the Salon of Photography in Brussels. What is it? Oh, yeah, just burning some leaves in the bottom of the garden. But they can't be at this time of year. Henry! No, you stay here. However, a nice vignette precedes that murder. When Louis first meets Henry outside the village pub, Hamer covers the exchange in a simple two-shot but Slocum deploys an old lens with imperfections at its perimeter, as if to pay homage to pioneering photographers. It is a technique that Roger Deakins used for specific shots in Andrew Dominic's The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. He was listed in the city directory as Thomas Howard, and he went everywhere unrecognized and lunched with Kansas City shopkeepers and merchants, calling himself a cattleman or commodities investor someone rich and leisured who had the common touch. Again, Hamer began as an editor, and to his credit, there were several smooth cuts that subtly enriched the film's structure. The story is narrated by Louis from his own memoir, which, when the film starts, he has just finished writing. The story then unfolds as Louis reads back over his manuscript. 
This first-person narration implies that Louis knows everything, and his narration will tell us everything we need to know. However, at crucial moments when Louis is with Sibella, Hamer cuts to a close-up of her, a close-up that is not from Louis's point of view, but one that Hamer lets linger so that we can get a hint that she is scheming a plan of her own. As indeed she does. With Louis so close to inheriting the Chalfont title, Sibella suddenly wants rid of Lionel and to marry Louis. But Louis is so focused on his murderous mission, he is not yet aware of Sibella's plan to murder Lionel. Only on the eve of his execution, when he is reading back over his manuscript, does he come to realise Sibella's plot. Which not only explains why Hamer gave us those close-ups, but also gives us a very good reason to re-watch and revel in this Ealing masterpiece. (laughs) 